great Odin's raven. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. This is, this is ridiculous. Okay, I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. I'll go. With, I'll go. Hello, and welcome to the FilmPulse.net podcast. This is episode number 66. My name is Adam. Today, I'm joined by Kevin. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. All right. Today, we have a great show lined up. First, I'll be speaking with Todd in the Book of Pure Evil creator, Craig David Wallace, which is our Kickstarter project of this week. Then I had a chance to speak with director Jordan Vote roberts on his upcoming film, Kings of Summer, which is hitting theaters May 31st. And of course, we'll also be talking about some of what we've been watching. We'll be doing a quick review of Ben Wheatley's new film, Sightseers. And finally, we'll be going over this week's movie predictions and DVD and Blu-ray releases. Let's kick things off with our interview with Craig David Wallace and talk about Todd and the Book of Pure Evil, the movie, which is currently being funded on Indiegogo. Let's take a listen. So let's start by maybe talking about the show in general for people that aren't familiar with it. Oh my God, I've been talking about the show for so long. How do I talk about it? Uh, maybe, maybe, just a, maybe just a summary. A summary of it. Um... Todd Smith, a teenage metalhead who pretty much just wants to get stoned, finds the Book of Pure Evil, which promises him the power to win the heart of the girl of his dreams and instead uh, makes life pretty difficult for him as he gets possessed by the power of evil and becomes heavy metal guitar god and only narrowly escapes its power uh, due to the efforts of his best friend, the one-armed Curtis. Uh, And thus, the two of them, along with the said hot chick, vow to destroy the evil of the book forever. I think that is the best summary of a show that I've ever heard in my life. Fantastic. So... The thing that I liked about the show, and and first of all, I'm a big fan of the show. So when I saw this project come up, I was I was on it. Awesome. Um, the big the, one of the things that I really liked about the structure of the show was that kind of each week it was kind of tackling a common high school like stereotype or problem and Absolutely. kind of flipping that and turning it into like this comedic horror story. And I, and I really like that aspect of it. Now, with the movie, and I might be getting a little ahead of myself, but will there be that type of um, story involved with the movie? In a way. Um, a lot of the way that we're looking at the movie is... is the, the, the main reason why we're really doing this movie is to really tie up a lot of the storylines that we had introduced. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was a big fan of Lost right up until the end there. When I was like, the numbers, man! What about, the, what, what about Walt? You know, and, mm-hmm. and I swore that with Todd that we would wrap up everything as best as we could. Uh, and so this is our opportunity to do that. Um, so there'll probably be less of a real um, episodic quality to it. Like, it's going to be a real full-on probably around an 80-minute story Um, so there won't really be like multiple episodes in it but that being said uh, at this point with Todd and his friends we have a lot of relationships built up there that we will be dealing with all of those same teen issues Mm -hmm. but much more of a longer more like character dramatic sense rather than you know a side character that we've never seen before finds the book and you know it's it's explored that way this will be team themes explored through our characters right and as the second season started to draw to a close we did see more of that with dealing with the characters and their relationships and i thought that that was a nice progression as well 
Yeah, I mean, we had a real, real blast doing that, and and for me, that's really where um, I really, I, I felt like my own skills as a as a storyteller were really starting to emerge, or you know, maybe not skills, but um, my real love of storytelling was was shifting much more from the hey, let's let's come up with a really wacky monster this week, and more about hey, what really interesting thing can we do with these characters at this point? And when we were developing season three, because we had some some time to develop it before we were uh, we were canceled. And that's really the direction that the show was going in. I mean, we still had a very much, uh, we had tons of ideas for, for episodes, but we were really delving into these characters and how they were all interconnected and how they were all going to deal with all of the problems that uh, they've encountered over the, the first two seasons. Yeah, now the show lasted for two seasons. Uh, I do want to mention that it is currently available on Netflix still, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's on Netflix, so you can go back and watch all the previous episodes. I think there was 26 of them in the first There's two 26. seasons. Yeah. So um, as far as a plan, did, did you have uh, like a grand scheme from the beginning, or did you were, were you kind of making making it so that it was more episodic? Originally, originally it was very much more episodic. Uh, it, it's the whole story is actually comes from um, a short film that I did at a place called the Canadian Film Center, which is like a lot like Canada's version of the AFI, the American Film Institute. So while I was there, I, I got an opportunity to pitch a short film, and I, I pitched um, well what was called Young Faust at the time uh, with this writer Max Reed, and um, it was basically an updated story of Faust. It was Faust as a fifteen-year-old metal kid, and and um, and that's pretty much all I really knew about Faust. Uh, he is the guy who made a deal with the devil for stuff, right? <laughs> okay, cool, let's make him a metal kid. Um, but during that whole process, it, it evolved into you know Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. And uh, after we had a little bit of success with the short film on the film festival circuit, the idea to turn it into a TV series presented itself. And originally, it was going to be an anthology series where there really wouldn't be any recurring characters. Every episode, you would just find who got the book, and then they would by the end of the episode, die in some sort of absolutely terrible, horrible way. Mm-hmm. And we all thought this was great. <laughs> and uh, and uh, eventually people kept saying, you know, you need some characters that people want to turn back to every episode. And we're like, oh, okay. And so we started looking back at Todd, and we were like, hey, you know what? Todd is is the real hero of this. And we started fleshing out all of his friends and getting this world. So at that point, we kind of knew that we we definitely knew that we Todd needed to have some sort of connection with the book. I mean, he had to have some sort of destiny. And exactly how that was going to play out, we weren't exactly sure. And same with the other characters. We we had little starting points. We had we knew that each of the characters had um had some sort of ongoing storyline that we could play with. Todd had his destiny. Atticus had his whole relationship with the Satanist and his father. Um, Curtis. Uh, with Curtis, it was interesting because we, I think, really from the beginning, we thought he would, um, we would play on the idea that his family was connected to the the Satanists in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jenny had her dad who was missing, and with Hannah. Um, we made a really big point of making her name be Hannah B. Williams right from the beginning, and we knew that those letters were going to come in handy. Uh, we, we, you know, we originally we we initially thought that like you know there's going to be some other Hannahs there with different initials, uh, but on the whole, we didn't really know where it was all going. We had kind of a you know a vague kind of plan of where to kind of push things. But as we were shooting season one, uh, we kept coming up with more and more ideas. And by the time we were shooting season two, we had things pretty much fleshed out. And once uh, we finished shooting season two, uh, Charles Pico, um, the co-creator of the series and I, sat down in a room. And we actually fleshed out 
an arc for two more seasons, uh, seasons three and four, because we were feeling like, okay, uh, our actors are kind of, you know, <laughs> not really teenagers anymore. So if we're going to get through this, let's try to shoot two seasons back to back. And so that was our original pitch that we were going to go to the broadcaster with. It was like, here's 26 more episodes. Let's shoot it all back to back. Uh, but then we quickly realized that it was going to be hard enough to even pitch um, uh, one <laughs> season the ratings climate that we were in at the time. Uh, and so we condensed it down to one season and uh, unfortunately we were not picked up. But we really fleshed out the season, like season three in a way that I think some of the best writing I've ever been involved with was in these storylines. And so we've been, you know, we've we've got a really nice wrap up to everything and we've been trying to figure out like, oh, what was the best way to do this? And when we couldn't get another network to pick it up live action, uh, we started toying around with the idea of like, okay, well maybe we'll just do it as a graphic novel and then it became like well if we're going to do it as a graphic novel you know maybe we should do it as a motion comic because then we can use all the same actors mm -hmm. and then at that point it was like man if we're going to like do a motion graphic novel and have the actors voices in there why don't we just find a way to make this an animated feature to wrap, wrap it all up mm -hmm. and let's talk about that so you made the choice to make it an animated feature was this a difficult thing to come to were you kind of thinking oh well, maybe we can just fund fund a live action movie out of it and how's the fan reaction been to making it animated well it's interesting because i think you know all of us in team todd we've been living with these characters and these stories for so long uh but we also come like i mean it's it's a professionally it was a professionally produced show so uh it, it's a pretty expensive show believe it or not and so the option of doing it as a, as a live action movie just was never even an option for us there was just no way we would be able to raise the capital in order to do that um so it's it's been interesting to see the fan reaction there's been actually a lot of questioning of our decision to do an animated series uh or an animated um uh, feature to wrap it up and I mean really it just comes down to logistics like uh, the amount of money we're trying to raise for this Indiegogo campaign is literally less than 10% of a single episode of Todd uh, and you know even then we were like geez do you think we could even raise 75,000 so it's the the amount of money that we would need to actually do a feature and not have it really I guess degrade the quality of what what we presented in the first two mm -hmm. seasons just seemed impossible. I mean, we we talked a lot about how we could do a live action show, and it always came down to, you know, we don't want to ruin the legacy we already have, mm -hmm. and there's no way we could do it live action at the quality level that we had already done these two seasons. Um, but with an animated series it actually opens up the world a lot more for us and we can pull off a lot of stuff that we always wanted to do but we didn't have the resources for it and it just seemed like out of any show that was out there our show could accommodate doing an animated season without really feeling like it was a different show mm -hmm. now do you have an animator lined up yet uh, no we don't we've got a few people we're, we're looking at um, right now it's just really just focusing on getting this this campaign working mm -hmm. and, right. and I do want to mention that Though it is an Indiegogo campaign, this is a fixed funding campaign, which is essentially the same format as, as Kickstarter, where it's an all or nothing goal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we were, we really just went in going, you know what, if we can't raise $75,000 to do this, then, you know, what are, what are we doing trying to make a feature film? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so getting back to the cast, uh, 
is it can you confirm that the the whole cast is going to be in this animated film everybody's in there everybody that you saw in the indiegogo campaign video um they're all on board so it's uh it's exciting i mean on on a personal level just the idea of being able to work with everybody again is just so exciting you know we ended too soon and it, it would be really nice to just get everybody back together for one more go um so yeah they're all there alex house maggie castle melanie leishman bill turnbull chris levins and jason muse they're all on board and you know some other most of the other people you think you know might be hanging around the world of todd they're they're on board too so we definitely have a few surprises uh in store so do you, now the the show the live action show it got into some pretty grandiose crazy things are, yeah. are we gonna see even more craziness more over the top stuff because it's animated and you can pretty much do anything I think we will, but I think one of the dangers once you're getting into animation is that because you can do anything, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should yeah. just do anything. Everything that we'll do will be very much in the spirit of the show. And, you know, as we were talking about how by the end of season two, you know, it was really getting really in deep with the characters and their their ongoing relationships and the uh, the mystery the mystery arc of uh, of the book. Um, that's going to play foremost. That's going to be at the forefront there. I mean, we shouldn't we we won't be doing anything just for the sake of doing it. Anything that we do will have a real purpose to it and moving that story forward and giving the conclusion to the show that we all wanted to see. Yeah, I think that that's interesting. That's an interesting point because there have been live action properties that have been converted to to animation like the clerks cartoon and i think there was even a napoleon dynamite cartoon and, yeah, and with with each of those they kind of really embrace the animation almost too much almost to a fault where it was just so ridiculous and over the top and cartoony and yeah. i think that it would be an interesting dynamic if you had it be essentially the exact same as the live action just being animated yeah, totally. I mean, where we would really probably push the animation is um, in those unreal, unreal elements that you would see already in the show, like with uh, the supernatural elements and the monsters. Those we could do stuff that we wouldn't be able to do in a physical reality doing a live action show, but we definitely don't want to go in the direction where, you know, Todd's eyeballs are bugging out to a sound <laughs> trumpet or things like that. You know, it's like the trying to ground the reality as much in, in the reality of, of that we can in animation and let the, uh, the supernatural run wild. Yeah. That's, that's really good to hear because uh, I think that when most people hear that it's going to be animated, I think that the biggest fear is like, Oh, it's not going to have the same, kind of tone or feel as the live action version? Well, it's certainly going to be different. I mean, there's no way we could absolutely capture the same live action feel, obviously. But what we're hoping to do with the animated uh, feature is to uh, capture the same spirit, you know, that you get the same sense of what the hell am I watching <laughs> from this feature than you would watching the show. I mean, really, it's funny, looking back on the show, I mean, like, I'm proud of almost every aspect of the show, and I love all the really big set pieces that we did. But, man, the, the stuff I'm most proud of, ah, uh, man, like, just the, the, the shot from uh, the season one season finale where Todd's just sitting on the steps of the school and he's got the sword and we do that big pullback and you see mm -hmm. the school. Like, for me, that was that was a dream come true to do a shot like that. And just to get that feeling with the music and the tone and everything like that was an achievement for me. <laughs> and in um, the second season finale, just that whole scene where Todd's sitting down with Jimmy and they're just having a heart to heart. That was, 
that was something that I felt like, wow, we, we're really hitting something with this show now. Like we've really, we've been able to to do all the gags. We've been able to make everything funny, but here's a moment where we actually have two fairly ridiculous characters having a pretty emotional moment and I buy it and I'm there and I want, want to see what happens next. Yeah. Let's talk about some of the incentives you have um, on, on the project. Are there any like highlights that people can look forward to as far as perks? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's all on our Indiegogo web uh, uh, campaign site. Um, so just go to Indiegogo.com and type in Todd in the Book of Pure Evil. Um, but some of the highlights that, that I'm pretty excited about is, uh, you know, you can, at certain levels, you can have um, your own animated version of yourself be a, a background character. Or, you know, if you spring for one of the upper echelons of the package, you can get uh, yourself killed horribly on screen, <laughs> which, uh, which I think is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's that's great. And you also have the standard stuff like the digital download and and um that type of thing available as well. Also Absolutely. I also want to mention that even though it's in Canadian dollars, it's n- the the prices aren't that much different for our US listeners. So don't don't be afraid. I know that some of the people that we've talked to in the past, that's been actually problematic. Is, really? Yeah, like conversion rates and stuff that that kind of scares people for some reason. Yeah, well, it's funny because um, uh, not that long ago, maybe even just a year and a half ago, the Canadian dollar was slightly stronger than the American dollar, but it's definitely not the case now. I mean, yeah. your your American dollar goes a lot further <laughs> in Canada at this point. So now's the time to donate to our Indiegogo campaign. There you go. <laughs> so, can you give us any uh, without any serious Spoilers to the end of the second season maybe give us just a hint or a little tidbit of what we have in store for the movie oh absolutely well i mean season two ended with todd sending the book of pure evil away and you can't really have a todd in the book of pure evil feature without bringing the book back so you know you can only imagine how we're going to bring that book back to wreak havoc on Crowley Heights once again. Um, we also have, uh, you know, Atticus was stuck in the book, and we can't really have the show without Atticus. So there'll be some interesting uh, explorations of uh, how he got out of the book, how he gets back to Crowley Heights, and uh, what exactly happened to him when he was stuck in the book. Um, of course, we killed off one of our most beloved characters in the season finale and brought her back at the very last moment. Uh, so you'll be able to find out all about her and what that was all about Mm -hmm. and then we have uh of course the metal dudes uh and their whole history (laughs) with talking the book and what that's all the mystery that's involved there and uh you know we left with uh with jimmy the janitor jason muse uh leaving the the school for the first time in 16 years to explore the world and uh you know there's i'd say there's a pretty good chance of him coming back with uh with with some stories of his adventures (laughs) oh that's fantastic i'm so excited yeah, it's going to be fun. I can guarantee you that there will be a there'll, there'll definitely be a wolf involved as well. Oh, very nice. All right, Craig. Well, thanks so much. Great. Thank you. Again, Todd in the Book of Pure Evil, the movie, Indiegogo. Check it out. Right. Right on. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Craig. If you haven't checked out Todd in the Book of Pure Evil, the entire series is currently available on Netflix Instant. And be sure to donate to the Indiegogo campaign. We'll have the link in the show notes as well as the Kickstart Sunday section of filmpulse.net. Next up, let's have a conversation with Jordan Vote roberts on the, his upcoming film, The Kings of Summer, which I had a chance to check out at the Sarasota Film Festival 
Absolutely loved it. Let's get into it. Well, I know that this has probably been asked a million times over by this point, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about Kings of Summer and what it's about. Um, all right. Uh, short answer, like normal pitch version, Kings of Summer is a comedic coming-of-age story about a group of three teenage boys who run away into the woods and build a house, right? Uh, it's got a bunch of amazing comedians in it, and it's got a bunch of amazing kids in it. Um, and it really is just sort of um, a coming-of-age story. Long answer, it um, it's about the fucking feeling of walking out of the theater. Can I swear? Is that okay? Uh, absolutely. Okay. It's encouraged. <laughs> All right, I swear a lot. So, <laughs> look, it's it's about the fucking feeling of walking out of the theater and saying, "God damn, being 14 is the best." And then immediately following that up with, "Oh my god, that was the worst time of my life. Thank God I'm done with that." <laughs> you know, it's what makes you who you are though. Uh, and it's it's a throwback to movies that made me want to be a filmmaker, which are early Amblin movies mm-hmm. and and uh, Stand by Me and John Hughes movies and uh, it's it's a mashup of all of my influences, you know. So there's like a little bit of uh, uh, Terrence Malick in there, and there's a bunch of weird. I just wanted to take that really old sort of classic movie style that I don't think people make anymore, and mash that up with really weird contemporary comedy and current themes. And so, and yeah. I, if I, if I say so, this is that is exactly why I love this movie because. I feel the exact same way. I Stand By Me is my all-time favorite movie. So when this premiered at Sundance and was getting a lot of buzz and a, a lot of people were comparing it to Stand By Me, and I was like, oh, well, I'm kind of intrigued right there. But it, like you said, it also kind of has that Malick feel, that old Amblin style to it. And what I'm wondering is, because a lot of people are comparing it to Stand By Me, and uh, I think I heard somebody, there's like a pull quote that said it was like, Stand By Me meets Superbad. Like, how do you f- right. how do you feel about that comparison? Well, I mean, look, <laughs> first and foremost, like, when I first read the script, the first reference point to me in my mind was be, be, to be like, great, I, I want to make a postmodern Stand By Me, which is to say, Stand By Me is about a bunch of kids and a generation that could do that. They could go out into the woods. They could make this happen. But that was that generation, mm-hmm. you know. That generation was a generation that bred men, you know what <laughs> I mean? And and our generation is a bunch of fucking wusses mm-hmm. who, like, sit around mm-hmm. talking about how cool it would be to be men. And um, so, like, obviously, like, the Amblin stuff and the Stand By Me stuff was a reference point while making the movie. But not in my wildest dreams did I actually think in a positive way people would consistently be comparing us to Goonies and to Stand By Me and to Malick stuff. You know, like that's that's something that like I don't tread lightly about because I'm a big like film nerd. And so to, to even be getting those comparisons is like pretty surreal and crazy to me. And like I'm I'm honored that people are like putting us in that category. <laughs> but like, you know, I uh it's just it's just surreal. Um, you know, but as far as like the super bad meet Stand By Me thing, like yeah, I, I think that like, look, that's that's super cool. I, the, the the quote that I actually think is like a little more applicable in a weird way is um, uh, the first showing guys had a quote that called it. Um, what did they say? 
they said the perfect film for a YouTube generation, and I mean that in a good way. Yeah. And I think that that's actually kind of like a fun thing because it really is like a mashup of these things. So to be compared to Super or to Stand By Me is phenomenal. And the idea of like I get the super bad thing, but our movie is not raunchy in that way like i think that they're saying that because there's sort of like two main characters and then a a third kind of like oddball character Mm -hmm. you know even though we're r-rated and there's a bunch of really weird shit in this movie (laughs) it's nowhere near as like raunchy as something like super right and i think that maybe maybe that comparison is just because i think that it's to note that this is a comedy whereas stand by me is a more dramatic film that has comedy this is kind of the opposite where it's more of a comedic film that has drama in it totally yeah absolutely um yeah but you know i think that uh i think that's like an interesting thing right because like I, i just feel like we're in this phase where some of my favorite movies from back in the day are movies that are some of my favorite movies in general you know you look at three kings you look at boogie nights you look at annie hall you look at these movies that I really like I think are hard to define as like comedies or dramas. They're just movies. Mm-hmm. And that's why I love old Amblin movies, you know, because like the it's just it's more so about investing you in a in like a world and a set of characters. And then if it's funny or dramatic or heartfelt or adventurous, that's just icing. Right. You know, like I, I feel like we've gotten away from this like this feeling of just saying, like, man, that was a film. You know, you walked out of it and it's a story. And it's a character and it's a journey you go on. And these are the things that happen because life is a spectrum, right? Like, well, of course, like life is highs and lows mm-hmm. back, back to back. And so it, it, it's weird that we're even having this conversation to be like, well, that's a drama and this is a comedy. Because, like, you know, that, that, I don't know. I just think the best comedies are comedies that, like, aren't just that pure. That's like, this is a straight comedy, you know? Yeah. Um, because you essentially, know, this is a film about life and growing up and of course there's going to be comedy and drama and everything else in it totally it's it's about being it's about adolescence and it's about that like time in your life when uh when you think you have everything figured out and then the rug just gets pulled out (laughs) from under you super hard and you fall right on your face and you're like oh fuck i don't i don't know anything about anything um and you know i don't know i just i look at movies like up and Up is a movie that like so beautifully rides the spectrum of saying like, hey, we can we can make you laugh and cry back to back. Mm-hmm. And I think when, when movies can do that, it just becomes more powerful. Like, you know, I'm a big fan of the movie Tommy Boy, which is like as broad as you can get mm-hmm. into comedy. But Chris Farley's so endearing in that movie. And I use this as a, an example a lot because I think it's a really powerful one. But Chris Farley's so endearing in that movie that, like, by the time his dad dies, you feel something, right? You know, and that's like a big dumb comedy. And like, yeah, I wanted to, you know, I, I just feel like if you ground and the, the old Amblin movies were so good at this, but like, I just feel like if you ground a movie in a, a world, if you create a world and you create a set of characters, you really can like push it to both ends of the spectrum. Like there's stuff in in this movie that's like fucking crazy, <laughs> you know, borderline slapstick and like, you know, make no mistake to any of the listeners. Like there's, I think there's like super funny. Like if you see this in with an audience, like it's a big, mm-hmm. like out loud movie, hopefully oh, it is, but you know, but then the other end of the spectrum is there's a bunch of like raw, dark shit about <laughs> like, like and, 
you know, other things that I don't want to bring up because it's kind of like spoiler territory. But yeah, like, you know, that's the spectrum. And that's that's the type of shit that I I love stuff that, that plays with that spectrum as opposed to just being like, well, it's a comedy or drama. But you're right. You know, it's like it is more comedic overall than standby. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's one of the big reasons that this is getting like such rave reviews is that it's it, it just combines everything and it's just so perfectly crafted. And that kind of transitions us into what I wanted to ask you about next, which is uh, the cast. Now, yeah. this is a really character driven film. And I think that the key to this, the success of this film is the characters. So I just want to ask about the casting process and like, did you have any actors specifically in mind when looking at the different roles? Because the Nick Offerman character, for example, I mean, it seems like that was tailor made for Ron Swanson, you know? Um, well, when the, when the script came to me, uh, you know, this guy Chris Galetta, who is incredible, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I just fell in love with with the world and characters and his voice right away, and and I just knew for me, like, I could take it and do so much with it cinematically and just push all the things that I was interested in doing. But in terms of the characters. You know, I mean, Nick, I, I can't imagine anyone other than Nick Offerman yeah, exactly. in the role. And, you know, it, but, you know, the unfortunate circumstance of making this is a movie that no one wanted to make. You know what I mean? Like, no, no one, no one's in the business of making a movie about kids for adults. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, no one wants to, no one wants to make that movie anymore. You know, all the time you, you go to these meetings and people are like, oh, we want to find the next Goonies. We want to find the next this. And it's like, no, you don't. You don't want to make a, like a, a non-star driven movie. You know what I mean? Like you, you say you want to do that, but you don't. Uh, and so, you know, Big Beach, the Little Miss Sunshine guys are incredible, but there were still conversations early on about fucking trying to go after like movie stars, like huge, like A-list names for that role. And the whole time it was like, Nick Offerman would be great here. Let's, mm-hmm. let's just go to Nick Offerman. <laughs> like, let's, you know, because he's one of those guys and I love working with comedians and having them also do some dramatic lifting. Um, and, you know, look, he's super funny. And I think you might go into the movie and initially be like, oh, it's kind of like Ron Swanson territory. But by the end of it, he I think he surprises a lot of people mm-hmm. by what he's doing. Um, and, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to cast. There's a bunch of great comedians, Alison Brie and Megan Mullally, and, and there's a bunch of little cameos like Hannibal Burris mm-hmm. and Tony Hale, just these great comedic actors that I wanted to build this, this sort of world around. But, you know, with the kids, I mean, the movie lives and dies by them at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can you can have all these great, hilarious adults who, like, definitely steal a lot of those scenes, but if all of the kids aren't great, and I mean all of the kids then the movie's a failure, like, you know, because so much of it really is about, you're right, like, it's it's about the characters and, like, not just the characters, but, like, the rapport and the relationship, like, just watching the way they, the kids interact with each other and hopefully the audience, to me, it was just super, super important that the audience, like, there, there'd be a handful of moments throughout that they're just like, oh, that right there, that little tick or mannerism or the way they interacted with each other, like, that's so pure and raw to what it was to be that age. So that was really difficult to find those kids, and it took a long time. And I really didn't want to cast twenty-five-year-olds. You know, I wanted them to be mm-hmm. as close to sort of fifteen as possible. So that that in itself, like, immediately cuts out a huge group of people. So finding the kids was great, and then like, you know, 
having Nick Offerman say yes is like a dream come true and the most intimidating thing in the world because, he, you know, he's like, is just the, so much of the movie is about masculinity. And uh, the writer and I are both like decidedly horrible uh, attempts at being men. <laughs> is, uh, he is a man through and through uh, who makes things with his hands on a daily basis. Now, oh, keeping with the characters, I want to talk about Biagio because... Sure. In a lot of ways, I think that he he really steals a lot of scenes in this film. And yeah. uh, I'm probably going to butcher his name, but it's Moises... Last name? Arius. 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 Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. So, was with that character, and he's kind of... He's the oddball that, we were men- that you mentioned earlier. And w- how much of that character was written into the script, and how much of it was kind of created by him because it just seems like he's just so out there well the 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 great thing about moises uh so like look uh i never watched hannah montana because i'm an adult and i don't (laughs) care about hannah montana but there's like 10 million kids out there who fucking loved hannah montana Uh so apparently moises was on that show kind of as like the comic relief and i literally literally had no idea about this and uh, you just got to think, to an entire generation of kids, he was like their Steve Urkel or Screech. He was like their comic mm-hmm. relief. He would be in Ohio shooting, and this kid would have little teenage girls coming up to him crying. <laughs> like, it was crazy. Meanwhile, I had no idea who this kid was or what this show was. Um, I actually cast him off a tape, which was really crazy. Uh, and I was getting really worried about that role because – you know, Chris wrote this incredible character who, if likewise, if he didn't work, you would just have, you know, jokes every scene just falling on their face. Right. And not just jokes falling on their face, but like he becomes like a really sort of pure uh, emotional core to the movie because he he's like a dog, like his sense of like friendship and uh, and loyalty is so pure. So by the end of it, like even though even though you sort of know nothing about this character, mm-hmm. you sort of feel like you know everything you need to know about him in a weird way, right. uh, because you you get a sense of like what's important to him. Uh, and so Chris wrote a bunch of amazing stuff, but really, you know, with all of the kids and Biagio especially, it really was a process of me working with them to sort of redefine what the characters were for them, you know. And then like at a certain point, all of those kids just kind of took over and. I couldn't remember how I originally envisioned them because they were just operating on such a high level, like just knocking it out of the park left and right. And, uh, you know, Chris and I were just constantly feeding Moises lines and, and riffs and alts. And, uh, you know, that whole they I don't know if you remember the specific scene um, in the when they're all having dinner and he's like mm-hmm. I had a dog the other day that taught me how to die. Like, that's just, you know, that's in that we totally riffed, you know, in the moment. And, uh and there, there was a, a lot of improv overall going on during production just because I work with a lot of improvisers and I, I sent the kids through improv training in general. Um, but that wasn't necessarily to make them like super quick and witty. It was just to – because like I said, I wanted them to be comfortable enough in their own skin that I could give them responsibility and, and say like, hey, your brain is a 17-year-old brain. Bring stuff to this character that only a 17-year-old's brain would think of, mm-hmm. you know. I can't do that anymore. Um, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it 
the the best thing about Moises is that he was that is a character. People come up to me all the time and are like, "Man, that kid must be a weirdo, right?" And it's like, "Yeah, he's a weirdo, but like not in the same way. Like in real life, he's like a little gangster thug, you know? <laughs> like he just listens to rap music and uh, you know, he'll be like, "Yo, what's good?" Uh, whereas, so so that's like a that's like a performance through and through, which I think a lot of people. For some reason, when they watch it, they're just like, wow, they found a really weird kid to play that character. <laughs> and it, it's that's that's a performance. Yeah. I mean, he was I thought that almost every word out of his mouth was hilarious. You know, it, it's really, it's been really weird and interesting because everyone's always like, man, in the trailer, you got to put Biagio in it. And I really haven't wanted to because, A, I think that he's this weird thing that like plays best with context. You know, part of the joy of it is kind of like watching how it all unfolds, you know, and like every time it in like a very designed way, every time you come back to him, he sort of gets weirder and weirder <laughs> and weirder until you're in this world. So I think that's really difficult from a trailer perspective. But also, I kind of want him to be this like sort of discovery. You know, I would like to think that we can sell the movie off of off of Offerman and these other things and just the overall feel. And then people will go in and. You know, like the way you saw it and like the way the Sundance audiences and people saw it, be like, whoa, who is this guy? Mm -hmm. Been this weird sort of struggle with how much we put Biagio out there so far. Yeah, well, I think that the way that you've done it is is good because I I didn't necessarily know the character before going into it. So it was kind of a surprise. And the whole time I'm just trying to figure out, like who is this person that just kind of cre- creeps up out of nowhere? <laughs> <coughs> right. <laughs> uh, I mean, the best thing about like the weird freedom with the movie, because like, you know, the, the parents, everyone is crazy. Everyone except the kids and Biagio or Biagio is in this group, but like beyond Patrick and Joe and Joe's crazy in his own way. But like Allison Brie aside, everybody in the movie is like their own brand of crazy. Mm-hmm. Like everyone's a little left of center in their own world. And um, the best thing about it is like, even though Biagio is nuts and even though the parents are nuts, like, it, you know, I, I hope that for no one, they don't turn into caricatures because that was not the point. The point was to keep it real. But I would like to think we were given a lot of freedom by the pure fact that like everybody knows some kid with crazy parents and everyone knows that one kid on the playground that was like out of his mind mm-hmm. you know what i mean and so hopefully that like allows us a lot of room to um for people to still view these people as characters as opposed to just these wacky oddballs yeah and i think that i think that that's the big thing is that that everybody's relatable like i i can see myself in some of the characters i can see my friends my the the parents of some of my friends growing up and it was all kind of relatable. And I think that although uh, a guy will get more out of this movie just because it, it made me remember how the adventures that I would go on with my friends, I think that it's still kind of a universally um, appealing movie. You know what's interesting is at first I was like convinced when I was in the edit, like before this thing went to Sundance, like in the dark days of it all, when you, when you lose perspective on everything, <laughs> I was like, well... I made a movie for six people. I made a movie for uh, the very small subset of people who grew up in the Midwest, really like Terrence Malick movies, and are really into alt comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, girls are going to hate this movie. Everyone's going to hate this movie. And um, 
I've been really genuinely surprised at the female reaction to this movie because I've been like, I just even read a review the other day that was specifically titled like one lesbians take on the Kings of summer. And, and a lot of the female reviews that I've been reading, like talk about how the, it made them feel like, remember experiences that they never had basically, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because yeah, I would like to think it is because it's just about growing up in general. And obviously it is very rooted in male adolescence. And I think like men and women for the first part of the movie perceive it a little differently. Whereas I think men go in and they're like, wow, that's exactly what I wanted to do right there. And I think a lot of women are more just like, oh, this is a really cool, fun world. I love these characters. And then, you know, halfway through the movie when a certain thing happens, I think everyone sort of gets on the same page emotionally. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. That's what that age is. Um, but I've been really like genuinely shocked at the female response to the movie and uh, the fact that like it does seem to be playing a little more universally than I initially imagined, which is great. Yeah, and I think that the the Alison Brie character probably helps with that because like I know like my girlfriend, for instance, has a younger brother, and I think that she there was a lot that she could relate to and grasp onto there with that as well. Right. Well, when I when I called her to pitch her on it, because uh, she's she's a friend and we had been trying to work together for a while, and I sort of called her and I was like, "Look, this is not a big role at all, uh, but it's an important one because you're basically going to be the beacon and like the missing link of like how this family could have been. You know, mm-hmm. like if, if shit didn't hit the fan, if if everyone could communicate, you need to be the one." Even though you're going to have a crazy-ass boyfriend, you need to be the one sort of voice of normalcy and the one hint of, like, maybe things couldn't have gone this way, you know? And, and you know, I'm, I'm just honored and fortunate that she was into it. Yeah. Final question. Did did Nick Offerman create that house? Because I, <laughs> I know that he's a woodworking guy. You know, um, we... He's a woodworking guy. He's got a wood shop. Uh, I actually talked to him. <laughs> One of his first things in the when he signed on to the movie, he's like, "Well, I have a couple notes for you, Jordan <laughs> Roberts." Um, and his notes are just amazing. They were like, there were things like, "Well, when when Paul gets out of the truck in uh, outside of the high school, he's wearing his tool belt. No one would wear their tool belt while they're driving." <laughs> it's like, okay. Uh, Thanks, Nick. <laughs> or like they'd just be really oddly specific notes like that. To be like, no one would use that tool to do that. <laughs> it's like, God damn it, man. Uh, I'm not a man. I don't know about this shit. Um, so we, I talked to him a little bit about the house, and I even like looked into some of his buddies and colleagues all over the country who did a bunch of woodworking stuff. Unfortunately, like the schedule just didn't permit anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that if we had time, I think he definitely would have been uh, – I think he would have loved to have been involved in it. But, uh, yeah, we just – we couldn't really make it work. Oh, well, <laughs> it's it's still – I think the house turned out great. And, I mean, I think that that's a big you know, center, centerpiece out of this whole thing as well. How do, I mean, when you – so this is always an interesting thing for me, right? Like <clears throat> when you watched it, uh, it was – it was a tricky uh, balance to ride, right? Like, on one hand, I, I wanted it to be iconic. On the other hand, I didn't want it to feel like movie magic. You know, I wanted it to feel lived in enough and 
um, like approachable enough that a bunch of teen boys, if they actually like committed to it, they could have built it, you know, out of found materials and things like that. But still have it like, you know, amped up enough where people could be like, wow, that's fucking amazing, you know, but not have it, not ever look at it and be like, well, that just took me out of the movie. Like when you first saw the house, how did you react? Oh, I loved it. I thought it was great. I mean, especially because you included that montage of them collecting all the materials and stuff. And it didn't, I mean, it certainly wasn't like a Swiss Family Robinson type deal where you have like jacuzzis and stuff in the, in the house, you know, it. <laughs> It did feel realistic, but at the same time, it's just like, holy shit, if I only had half of that ingenuity in my youth, I could have made something amazing <laughs> in the woods. <laughs> but yeah, no, I thought that it was it was good, and it, the design of it was, ju- it was exactly like what you were going for, where it wasn't grandiose, but at the same time, it was something where it was like, that's impressive. Yeah, good, good. I'm I'm always I'm always just curious how people react to it. Um, but uh, it was that that house was like um, you know like when you read those stories about Jaws and the uh, how Bruce the shark that right. they had was like the bane of their existence. Uh, that house was like the same thing to us. It's just this thing where it's like when we were finally ready to tear it down, Chris the writer and I were just like, thank God, like because <laughs> it was just. You know, it was built practically, and it was purposely built really shitty. Because it was obviously it was like structurally sound, but you know, it wasn't waterproofed. It wasn't, and it rained during production, so mm-hmm. it like got moldy and muggy and gross. And like, you know, it just the, the the shooting in there, just the space of it was. You know, we needed to make it big enough to be able to shoot in, but not too big. And it was just such a. It was just a bane of our existence for a while. <laughs> so. Well, I thought that I thought that it looked really good. I mean, it it was like a, of a better quality than something in like Beasts of the Southern Wild. It didn't look like they were living in their own filth, but at the same time, uh, it, it was just good. It was it was like a kind of a happy medium in there. Good, 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 good. Uh, excellent. Thank you so much for uh, taking some time to speak with us. And the film is. In select cities, May thirty first. Uh, can you tell us anything about possible like video on demand release? That's something that's still in the works. You know, I haven't heard much about VOD. I mean, first of all, thank you for having me, uh, and thank you for you know being an early champion of this movie. Uh, you know, it's it's a tricky thing because we don't we're not going to have a huge marketing budget. You know, and this this movie really is going to live and die by whether people can find it and whether people whether people fall in love with it, you know, and whether the word of mouth can spread. And so uh, May 31st in New York and L.A., and then every week after that we, we expand out, um, you know, in by like the third week we'll be in, I don't know, 75 theaters or something like that, um, you know, in a lot of different cities. You know, I think by the third week we'll be like Dallas, Austin, Seattle, San Francisco, Detroit, Cleveland, uh boston you know just a lot of like major cities will have expanded to by that point um and you know no no talk of vod yet which i'm actually in a weird way excited about just because i i don't know i when i went to sundance the one thing that i wanted out of out of the sale was just like i wanted a theatrical deal because the reason i got into movies and the reason i think we all fell in love with them is like there's nothing like that theater absolutely and, and you know, like I literally was just emailing with someone the other day 
they were like 25 and i was like what what are your favorite movies like what are your favorite what are your favorite comedies what makes you laugh <clears throat> and um and their response was oh boy i don't really know about movies but here's my favorite youtube clips oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's just go there's nothing like going to a theater and walking out of the theater and actually you know that that feeling where you actually viscerally walk out and it's sad that this is the feeling now but like when you walk in, you're like, I'm glad I saw that in a theater. You know, mm -hmm. like, I'm glad I saw an audience. Um, and I just, I wanted to make a movie that warranted that. You know, I wanted to make a movie that was, like, cinematic in scope, but also, you know, I think that the type of comedy this is and the sense of discovery um, and just the, you, you can feel the audience go with it. And so, you know, I, I'm really happy that we're, we're, we have, a, like, a proper theatrical run first. You know, whether people find it, I don't know, but, like, you know, to to your listeners, I would just say like if you if you see this movie and you like it, tell one person. You know, put it on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Like one person makes a big difference with a movie like this. And um, you know, if, if 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 movies like this don't succeed, then we uh, we're just gonna get a bunch of big dumb summer blockbusters that we hate for the rest of our lives. So. Well, I think that uh, yeah, I mean it, it's it's. It's tough, you know. It's it's tough for the indie. I, I don't know if you saw, but uh, Steven Soderbergh had a big keynote at the San Francisco yeah. Film Festival, yeah, and yeah, that's kind of what he was talking about. Is you know the the studios are taking over, and it's tough for the smaller guy. Well, it's just I, I feel like there's a there's a bigger issue, right? Which is, and you know, he sort of got into this, but like the contract with between audiences and studios just kind of got broken somewhere you know like you look at the highest grossing movies of like the early 90s and you're talking about like rain man and forrest gump and like sort of intelligent dramas right and movies like that don't exist anymore because tv has taken that that place now mm -hmm. and now the biggest movies are the movie they're like the properties that I got picked on for liking as a kid, you know, like all these superhero movies and all this video game shit. And um and I, I think that's super cool, but you know, just this weird thing started happening where it's like it's just sad to me. Like my parents used to go to the movies all the time. And now they never go. Like now you've got Netflix, now you've got, you know, these big TVs at home oh, yeah. and you know, it's just it takes so much to get someone there. But like, I do think there's like the power of our medium is just like getting a bunch of strangers in a dark place and having like a shared experience. And uh, I just I don't know. I I, I, I want to I would like to think that if we if we can find some middle ground where like people start making movies that people are like, I want to see that in a the theater. You know, I, like I, this is this is worth seeing in a the theater that we won't all get put out of business by talking oranges on YouTube. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And this is definitely one to see in the theater. I wish that I was able to see stand by me when I was in theaters. Unfortunately, I was too young, but well, if you're, uh, if you happen to be in LA or Houston or possibly Austin, uh, like the last week of May, we're doing double features, uh, only some of them are fully booked right now, but we're doing double features of our movie with uh, Stand By Me and then Another Night with Goonies. That is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty awesome. I'm pretty excited about it. Well, Jordan, so. thank you so much again. Please go, please go see this movie. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me. Uh, this has been great. Uh, I appreciate it very much.
Thanks again, Jordan. Again, the film is The Kings of Summer. It hits select cities May 31st. We have a review for it up on the site right now, so you can check that out. And if it's playing in your city, I highly, highly recommend going to see this. Let's move on and talk about some of what we've been watching. Kevin, why don't you start it out this week? Oh, fine. Jeez. Uh, first one I watched was the Herzog documentary, Happy People, A Year in the Tega, which was directed by someone else. A Russian. I don't have it here. It was apparently it was originally Dimitri, yeah, Dimitri Vaziopov. Yes, yeah, like it, it started out as like a four-hour documentary, and then I guess Herzog got involved and you know sort of recut it, re-edited it, and it's extremely fascinating. They just essentially they go to Siberia to these a group of trappers, and they just follow them for a year. Just put the cameras on them. It's very straightforward. It's just essentially a year in the life of a trapper in Siberia. And <clears throat> I know that doesn't sound uh, too enthralling, but it is. And if you, if, and I say this for you, Adam, if you're a big fan of dogs, if you're a big dog person, this is right up your alley. Because, like, their best friend and their partners in trapping are their dogs. Mm hmm. And so they play a huge part in the whole the whole story, which is great. The way, you know the way the people they like truly respect and care for their dogs. It's just very interesting. I mean, to see the way these people live and how they survive out there, it's insane. And you know they'll keep cutting in to let you know that it's like negative forty degrees out or negative mm. fifty degrees, and you're just like, oh shit, that's right. And they're just they're just sitting there talking to you like it's it's nothing. And the, the, one of the interesting things, too, is they have a huge mosquito problem. And That's weird. Yeah. And they're and when they have the camera on them during this, like, mosquito season, I mean, they're everywhere. They're just, just swarms of mosquitoes. <clears throat> and their trick is that they found out is they create tar. And they, like, brush tar all over their bodies. <clears throat> so they have, you know, this, like, thick black nasty tar that they use as mosquito repellent and they you know they sort of discuss how terrible they all smell through this through the, <laughs> the mosquito season very interesting though definitely definitely worth a, a watch I highly re recommend happy people and then the, another one i watched is the face of another which is a japanese new wave film and this one really fucking good I mean, did, did you did you ever see Eyes Without a Face? No, I never did see that. Okay, it's it's sort of like that horror film, but this really isn't. This is more of like a like a psychological horror film, you know, where it deals with the the guy's mind state of not having a face because essentially he burned his face off during like a chemical accident at work, and he just wants to re-enter society. And, you know, he goes to a psychiatrist and they, they make this life-life mask for him to wear. And so he just does that. He just wants to be a part of society again. He wants to feel normal. And then he becomes obsessed with uh, seducing his wife and trying to get his wife back. And then that just has this huge effect on him. And it's a fantastic movie. Really good. Definitely, definitely check that out. And uh, this is from 1967, black and white. And 
the, the psychiatrist has all these qualms with doing this project and everything that he's sort of talking about can be is relatable to today with you know the internet culture and everything and our overconnected overconnected society so it's really interesting to see that because essentially like every single thing he's talking about you're like yeah that makes sense today mm. you can sort of understand you know people using their anonymity to just be cruel essentially which it's pretty much the internet Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, my God, message boards? You ever seen message boards and comments? It's like every single person. Like every, Unfortunately. It's like every single person is like just racist and sexist. Yeah. I, <laughs> believe me, I know. It's ridiculous. Uh, I finally got around. I was able to knock something off of my shame list here, and that is The Holy Mountain by Alejandro Jodorowsky. The just batshit insane film which uh, apparently is he took a shit ton of acid and he wanted to make a film that was comparable to an acid trip if that makes any sense like a film that has the power of acid or LSD and and of course it's also supposed to be like a it's like a holy film supposed to be like a holy scripture of a film and it's completely fucking insane the set design is unbelievable just the stuff that they are able to build for this film is amazing just set after set just perfectly designed and it's truly amazing um the only problem and it's it has essentially the same problem that uh, beyond the black rainbow had which is there's no story for like the first two-thirds of the film or three-fourths of the film which is fine. It's just experimental. It's just imagery after imagery and just insanity. And then for like the last fourth of the film, they just, he tries to slap this fucking narrative together and trying to give the, the, the film a story. And it just completely comes off as extremely shoddy, much like Beyond the Black Rainbow was, mm-hmm. which, which, which sort of ruined it. It's like, oh, really? You're going you're gonna to try and make it a story now? Have you seen El Topo? I have not seen El Topo. That's that's next. Okay. But this is he does there is a long elaborate scene of a man having his shit turned into gold. Ooh, nice. And there's also a gratuitous in your face anal washing scene. Ooh, anal washing. <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> guy gets and the, the, the Great. Thing, the thing is George Harrison from the Beatles was supposed to play the main character in this film. And he was all about it, except for that scene. And Jodorowsky would not get rid of it. So Harrison ended up... could use a body double for that. <laughs> he would think, but Jodorowsky, with the huge brass balls that he has, is like, I don't give a fuck if you're in the Beatles. I want you to get your anus washed <laughs> on screen for like a good minute. And Harrison said no. Couldn't do it. Gross. They got some other guy to do it, though. Yeah, it was terrible. Uh, another film that I finally got to see was, apparently this is a classic, Sidney Pollock, Jane Fonda classic. They shoot horses, don't they? Now, have you ever seen this? You've seen no. this film? <clears throat> okay. Now, this is, I've heard about it numerous times. It's supposed to be an American classic. I never really knew what it was about. So I come to find out that it's a group of uh, contestants in a dance marathon, like during the Depression, which apparently was a huge thing during the Depression were these marathon dance parties. Right. And 
it's pretty depressing. <laughs> I mean, they just nonstop dancing. They get like 10 minute breaks and that's it. And they just, they got to keep dancing and dancing. And of course the whole thing is rigged because, you know, the people that are putting on this contest, it's really for the people that come to watch them do the marathon. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, rig everything. And I have to say I was slightly disappointed by this. I don't really understand why it's a classic. I feel I feel like I've seen parts of this on TV back in the day. Well, it's one of those, and it's a great thing with a, a lot of films during like the late 60s and the 70s, how it's that slow buildup, and then the ending is fantastic, mm-hmm. which is how this movie is. The ending is unbelievable, but it takes way too long to get there. And it's pretty boring. It's just sort of redundant over and over, same thing, until the end. Mm-hmm. The end makes up for it, but, I mean, my God, you have to wait forever to get there. And it's, like I said, it's just the same thing over and over again. But someone needs, and I don't know if maybe there is a new DVD out there, it was just the one that I watched, but someone really needs to restore this film. Because well, the DVD that I had was absolute shit. Hmm. Good lord, it looked terrible. Which makes you think, if this is supposed to be a classic, why isn't it being, you know, better taken care of? Good question. Oh, well, whatever. And that's that's all I got. Okay. Uh, I started the week with Dolomite oh. from 1975. Oh, yeah. I've never seen this movie. This is like one of these... Classic black exploitation seventies flicks, uh, and I do like black exploitation. I mean, I I love coffee. Um, I like Foxy Brown. I like uh, pretty much everything. Sweet Sweetback, big fan of that one. But I never saw Dolomite, and I heard all kinds of great things about it. So gave it a watch for my Grindhouse Weekly feature. Stars Rudy Ray Moore, and it, this is completely ridiculous. I'm pretty sure it was billed as a comedy back then, but it's out of, it's completely out of control. It's pretty much everything you could ever want in an exploitation film. I mean, it's got over-the-top violence, sex, karate, <laughs> ridiculous one-liners. I mean... Pretty much every line that comes out of Dolomite's mouth is a one-liner. But, he's, but Rudy Ray Moore is such a horrible actor that it's just, it's all laughable. I was laughing the entire time I was watching this. There's scenes, I mean, multiple, like five or six scenes where the boom mic is clearly in the frame. Yes. And there's one scene where Dolomite and this other guy are talking outside. And not only can you see the boom mic... You can see the guy holding the boom mic. He's laying on the ground, and you can see his his face. You can see him holding up the boom mic and everything. And it's like, how did they not see this in when they were editing? I mean, it, it's plain as day. The only thing I can think of is that they only did one take of that of that and had to use it. Yeah, man, the film is expensive, and it's there's so many scenes in it where. They fuck up and they just leave it in there. And the editing is completely atrocious. Like nothing matches. <laughs> and it's, but it's so, it's so fun though. Like the whole time I'm watching it, it's just, it's great. 
he did uh i mean he was a stand-up comedian and don't right, like, yeah don't like came out from that yeah so I, that I would was... I, I wonder like how much of it is actually you know is on purpose you know to be funny or if well you're just them screwing up and not knowing what they're doing well that's kind of the thing like i i was never i was never really sure what was real and what was not and I think that in my article, I, I talk about that briefly, where I'm not sure what was intentionally funny and what, what was just funny <laughs> because it's so bad. But either way, I highly recommend checking out Dolomite. It's a classic. They made like two or three sequels from it as well. I think one was called The Human Tornado. Yeah. And one, one was called like Dolom- uh, Dolomite Returns or something like that. Oh, yeah. What is <laughs> Yeah, the return, the, the return of Dolomite. And there's also a spinoff called Shaolin Dolomite. <laughs> uh, so, definitely recommend Dolomite. It's ridiculous and amazing. And they have a box set on Amazon that has all of the Dolomite movies in it. Oh, uh, yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like 50 bucks. Nice. I saw Aftershock. This is the one that's not directed by Eli Roth, despite what everybody seems to think. <laughs> actually, it's actually directed by Nicholas Lopez. No, it's no, it's directed by Eli Roth. Starring Eli Roth, sort of, sort of <laughs> starring, sort of starring Eli Roth. Uh, I I liked the first act of this movie, but it started going downhill real quick. This is the one. It, it's currently playing on demand it's in select cities now and it's about an earthquake in chile and basically it's a a group of people have to survive this whatever a couple of things that i was reading about this and it's probably probably from your review actually but this movie sounds like a good idea except for the injection of the escape prisoners well that's the thing that just seems like an overkill that's the thing they add this whole so it's it's kind of like a disaster movie. It starts off as a as a disaster movie and the the entire pretty much the entire first act of the movie is this build, this build up where there's a lot that happens in this movie before the earthquake where it's just kind of establishing these characters and who they are and where they are and all this stuff and I liked all that stuff. It was funny. There was a there was a Wu-Tang joke in there which was yes. great. <laughs> Um, but then the earthquake happens, which the entire earthquake scene lasts for like three minutes, something like that, which I understand because earthquakes are not long. Usually they're quick, you know, Yeah. yeah. which I, I completely understand that. But then afterwards, after the earthquake takes place, they have to escape from this club and then they find out that the earthquake caused a prison to collapse and a bunch of prisoners escaped. And from that point, the movie completely switches gears and and turns into more of a standard, typical horror movie with the group trying to get away from these killers. And I think that it's cool to add that in there. Like, I think that that would be an interesting dynamic shift uh, in a typical disaster movie or in a disaster movie, but to change the focus yeah, from the disaster to them escaping from these killers, like I, I, it didn't work for me. And I think that it switches to this kind of just generic, 
predictable, boring movie. For, as soon as I read it, that you know that that was a plot plot point, I was like, no, this sounds terrible. Like I'm I'm cool with them adding that, but like add it and then move on, or add like don't make that the focus. Yeah, the entire focus of. Because I think that that would be cool to put in. If you're making a disaster movie that's also a horror movie, I think that that is something cool to add. But to completely throw away the whole earthquake thing and just focus on fo- focus it on this, yeah, that I just, escaped killers. I thought that it was just kind of a missed opportunity, but. Uh, that's that's pretty much all I, I saw. I was gonna say I just remembered that I saw The Great Gatsby. Oh yeah, or Gatsby. What is the official? I think it's okay. The Great Gatsby. It, yeah, it is The Great Gatsby. Bass Lerman, which well, why not? Yeah, how was how was that? I I, I I was gonna see it today and then I decided not to. Yeah, that was a good idea. Um, I had a hand at the Bass Lerman and uh, the studio and stuff. They this guy is probably the greatest per- turd polisher ever he can turn anything you know just give it shit tons of glitz and glamour and just over the top pop culture and just make a shit ton of money off of it and the way he does it is it's pretty brilliant but overall the film itself is mm, it's it's rough going um i know a lot of people are complaining about like the soundtrack i don't know if you've heard like any of the songs from the soundtrack yeah I heard it's sort of like the you know current pop culture doing covers of each other which most of it works it's okay i have no problem with it there's just a couple places and there's two instances of this they're driving across the bridge it's toby well toby mcguire and leonardo dicaprio driving across and they pass a uh, a car with like three black people in it and they have you know like a chest of champagne and either drinking and partying and everything and they're playing the like the Jay Z song, like it's they act like it's playing over the car radio, and they're like dancing to it. Just seems completely out of place, very bizarre, and just terribly done. And then there's another scene where they're like in this sort of underground burlesque show type deal, and there's a song by Jay Z playing called like Hundred Dollar Bills, which is fine. It's okay, but every time that the camera would like pan across or come into the women dancing. The women, for some reason, would be like sort of sing-song speaking the the words $100 bills. So it would just like pop in, but it wouldn't be a part of the music. It would just be like their actual lines of dialogue. And they would just be like, $100 bills, $100 bills. <laughs> and it's like, what? And it didn't match the music at all. And it's just, it's, oh my God. There's just so many, the CGI is just over the top ridiculous been entirely too much of it used and i was talking to you the other day is they get there's a lot of you know sideline characters that only have like three or four lines of dialogue just small interactions with toby mcguire or leonardo Mm -hmm. DiCaprio, and it is some of the worst acting i've ever seen and their line delivery is just so unbelievably terrible it's oh my god it's laughable and it's it's so bizarre that they took a film you know, based on F. Scott Fitzgerald book and dumped it down so much that it's like it was written for like fourth graders. It is <laughs> terrible. Hmm. Which I mean, you don't have to do much because F. Scott Fitzgerald sucks on his own. But they just dumped it down even more and it's it's oh 
it's bad. It is not good. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio is okay playing, again, his 100th character that is from the olden days. Yeah. And Well, there you have it. Yeah. Kevin does not recommend Great Gatsby. No, do not. Don't do it. I think uh, we had Alicia review it on the site. I think she gave it a 5 out of 10. Where where are you sitting on it? I'd probably sit like 3, maybe a 4, 3 or 4. And I think it has somewhere around a 48% on Rotten Tomatoes right now. So yeah, it's about- most, most people are not really liking that. No. Well, let's talk about a movie that is good. Uh, Sightseers by Ben Wheatley. Sightseers. This is... Uh, Playing in theaters now, it stars Alice Lowe and Steve Orem. Orem? Orem? Steve Orem. Uh, and let me go ahead and read the synopsis here. Chris wants to show girlfriend Tina his world, but events soon conspire against the couple and their dream caravan holiday takes a very wrong turn. So this is uh, by the same guy that directed Kill List, which we all loved. And it's sort of a dark comedy. <laughs> not sort of. <laughs> Let me rephrase. It's a very, it's a very dark, horror, I'd even call it like a horror comedy. Yeah. Um. So I, basically, I don't think it's any kind of secret. These two go on holiday and start killing people. Indeed. Indeed. So you you wrote the review for the site that's up there now. So I think that I'll start off this uh, this discussion and say that I, I actually really enjoyed this. I didn't think it was on the same level as Kill List. I thought that it was a lot lighter um, oh, yeah. Yeah. in plot, but clearly it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be kind of this odd, comedic, tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, and I loved... I love the the main characters were just so uh, plain, and, and that that was kind of what I liked about it. Like everything about it, the way that like their their costumes, like what they wore, just everything was so boring and normal about them. And I thought that that's what really made the killing <laughs> like really pop. You know? Yes, exactly. It's, it's sort of you know all the middle aged people that you see. Doing the very bland, boring holiday things, you know, pencil museums, tramway museums, yeah, tramway museums, and just looking at them and then imagining them as like savage murderers. Like, it, go to yeah. the Stroudsburg Railroad Museum and just pick out a forty-something-year-old that's wearing Skechers or New Balance sneakers, and then just imagine them smashing someone's face in with a stick. <laughs> That's what this film is, <laughs> but, but the English version. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it, it's very. I think that it is extremely violent. Uh, but I I thought that the violence really. I thought that it fit well. I thought that that yeah, made thought, it even more funny and yes, shocking. I love the way it's presented. It's presented in such a nonchalant way that it just seems commonplace. Yeah, <laughs> like when they kill someone, they're not even worried about like someone, you know, happening upon them and seeing what happened. They just sort of bicker and try and clean it up, just take their good old time. It's just yeah. it comes off as absolutely hilarious in it, a very dark, almost, dark way. It, to me, it almost had like a, a Napoleon Dynamite feel to it. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of the comedy is, it's extremely dry. Yeah. And it's a lot of, you know, throwaway or observational things. Just her, the whole knitting thing, uh, her pasta sauce. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's obsessed with her pasta sauce and her potpourri. Yeah. I just, I love the scene where he, you know, Chris doesn't come back to the caravan and she made pasta and she's, oh, I just, love that. she's dumping it into, in the, a, into to the, the trash can. <laughs> it was uh, like the mouth. Was it a bear? Yeah. That was, that was funny. Uh, I thought that the, the look of it was really good. I liked a lot of the locations that they were in a lot yeah. of like grasslands and fields. And yeah. And I, I think that's the best part about Wheatley. Is he's able to take these films and give it like a little bit, a little bit extra, like take it over the top a little bit, because mm-hmm. this this has like a cinematography of like a you know a drama, you know an award winning drama film, mm-hmm. but yet yeah, it's yeah. just it's just a dark comedy. I mean, I said in my review near towards the end of the film, I thought I was watching Weathering Heights. <laughs> it looked exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, it does that kind of bleak English countryside. I, I like Orleans. I liked all that too. It's just an enjoyable film, really. I mean, it's pretty unsubstantial. It's not going to blow your mind, or it's not like it has like anything really to say or comment on. Right. It's just a dark comedy that's enjoyable. Like I, I mean, I enjoyed this film more than Kill List, but obviously, Kill List is a better film, technically speaking. Yeah, I think on like an entertainment level. Yeah. This is. Yeah. This is. This is nice. It was, you know, a good comedy. But it's just the the little interjections of, I mean, brutal, brutal violence. Mm-hmm. Just really takes it to another level. Like, oh, shit, that's right. That guy got his face smashed in. <laughs> well, you gave it a 7.5 out of 10 on the site. Yeah. Uh, I'm going 7. 7? So? I'm going 7. So, Sight's ears. Check it out. Uh if it's playing in your area, I would definitely recommend going to see it. Is this playing on demand? I don't even know. I, I don't think so. I wasn't able to find it anywhere. Okay. But I, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know. But it, I wanted to ask, what do you think of the new one coming out? Because that was just announced, right? That Alamo Drafthouse yes. picked that up? Yeah, Field in England. I think that it's going to be, uh, from from the sounds of it, it's going to be pretty trippy. Yeah, it's, it's. I think it's going to be really kind of surreal and and crazy, and it's a horror movie, but it takes place during the English Civil War, <laughs> and uh, it's, I believe, shot in black and white. Oh, oh, I think. Oh, uh, could could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it might be black and white. Michael Smile is back from Kill List. Julian B- Barrett from The Mighty Boosh. <laughs> nice. I like. Yeah, I'm. Definitely excited for this. Yeah, and I I really stand by Draft House. They've uh, been putting out almost almost everything they put out. I like so. Yeah, they um, they they rarely make a you know misstep. I mean, out of all the uh, out of all the the distributors and stuff that we see movies for, Draft House is one of the top in my opinion because it's not like that they they don't just crap out releases. No, um, yeah, they, they, they're it, they're selective. Yes, exactly. And they don't care. It's it's clear that they don't care about making money hand over fist. They they care more about 
what they're putting out what they're putting out and but yeah like what their name is attached to yeah and <clears throat> i i'm a big fan of ben wheatley as it is so <laughs> i was interested in that movie before draft house announced that they were picking it up but the fact that draft house is picking it up is kind of like the icing on the cake you know yeah exactly i say yeah i completely agree all right let's move on talk about some predictions uh Last week, Ernie was with us, and we predicted The Great Gatsby and Peoples. Peoples. Uh, Great Gatsby, Ernie predicted 69, I predicted 74, actual 48, so we're a bit (laughs) off on that one. And Peoples, Ernie predicted 10, I predicted 15, actual was 38 Mm. on that. Yeah, so next week, we have a big week next week. Do we? Kicking the summer off big time. Star Trek Into Darkness. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh-oh. What are you, th- what are you thinking on that? Mm, I'm thinking like a 82. 82? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say like 78. Ooh, okay. I th- I'm very excited for it, but I don't know how it's going to be as far as critics. Uh, and that's really the only big release. Nothing else coming out. No, I mean, we have uh, Francis Ha, which I don't believe is getting a wide release. No. We have the Draft House Films uh, release of P- Pieta. Oh, well, yeah, that's right. I'm excited for that. Yeah, so we'll we'll definitely be reviewing that one. And then we also have Black Rock coming out in Select Cities. Which means not us. Yeah. So have those to look forward to dvd and blu-ray releases coming out this is for tuesday may 14th cloud atlas is probably the biggest one which i i still haven't seen i want you to i want you to i'll 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 check it out yeah i'll make a point i'm just i'm I'm very i'm very curious to see what you think because this is one that's that's definitely dividing there's really no in between with this film we'll see um, Frankie Go Boom, which I did see and is dumb. I did not like it at all. I'm not even sure if I reviewed it. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't know if I did. Uh, a Glimpse Inside the Mind of Charles Swan III, which I think we gave a 1 out of 10 on the site. Nice. I think um, maybe Todd reviewed that. Uh, it's pretty bad. And Texas Chainsaw 3D. which I haven't seen, but I also heard not very good things about that. So pretty, pretty dismal week. I also last week, for some reason, I forgot to mention upstream colors out. So if you haven't checked that out yet, yes, I was go see that. I was completely surprised by that. Like I get on Netflix and there it is. I'm like, what? Yeah. So that that's out now. So I would say instead of any of these, Pick that up. Just just ran upstream. Pick color. that up. Well, the, there is one other one that's supposed to be pretty good, which is uh, "Beware of Mr. Baker," which is the documentary, you know, story behind Ginger Baker, the drummer for Cream. Oh yeah, that's, that's supposed to be really good. Yeah, pretty you know crazy rock and roll story, which you might have seen before in your life, but oh uh, yeah, but, pretty sure I've seen. <laughs> pretty sure I've seen seen like fifty. Fifty of those, but again, if your your choices are between Beware of Mr. Baker, Frankie Go Boom, and a glimpse inside the mind of Charles Swan the Third, I'm going to say go with Beware of Mr. Baker. I would probably agree with that because I have seen Frankie Go Boom and Charles Swan. <laughs> horrible. 
Yeah, so definitely go with those two. Uh, only two Criterions to speak of, which are both Westerns, from Delmer Daves. The original 310 to Yuma from 1957 and Jubal from 1956. So if you're, if you're into Westerns, which is something that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and get into this year. Maybe not Westerns. get into. I'm going to watch a couple of Westerns. Like right now I have The Searchers with John Wayne. Mm-hmm. I'm going to watch that coming up here. And I'm oh, not, cool. I think I've seen like maybe one Western in my life. And of course, I, 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 haven't a, I haven't seen a lot of old Westerns. I've only seen like more modern Westerns. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I should, you know, clarify that I'm going to be watching the older Westerns. Hmm. The classics. Look at that. Yeah. We'll see. I'm not too excited about it. We'll is, is like the good, the bad and the ugly. Is that, would that can be considered a classic Western? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna consider that one a classic. Okay. That's okay. one that's on the list. Cool. Well I think that, that wraps it up. For all the latest film news and reviews, visit us at filmpulse.net. We want to hear your feedback. Send us an email, feedbackfilmpulse.net. Follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net and be sure to rate us on iTunes. We appreciate that very much. For filmpulse.net, my name is Adam. And I'm Kevin. And we will see you on Wednesday for Ryan Watches a movie. Muffled. 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 Let's just say muffled for like five minutes. <laughs> muffled. 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 muffled.